You can't be neutral on the moving train. I told y'all before. You can't believe everything that your teacher tell you. Who is your teacher? Your teacher just learned what they was taught. How do you know what they was taught was correct? Welcome to You Can't Be Neutral, a political podcast inspired by Howard Zinn and progressive and radical activism, taking a look at society, media, and politics. You can check out all the back episodes of You Can't Be Neutral at youcan'tbeneutral.com. There you'll also find some links. You'll find a link to send me a message. You'll also find some links there to make a donation. You can make a one-time or recurring donation to keep this podcast free and independent. We focus a lot of our time and effort on those things that are harmful to us individually, to society, and that's really, really important work. What is also really, really important work is building the alternative. So this episode will focus on both of those aspects of making the world a better place. First up, a piece published at wagingnonviolence.org. This is written by Arnie Alpert. There's one form of power that's generated when hot water turns turbines to create electricity. There are other forms of power held by investors, property owners, and regulatory agencies. And then there's people power, which can be harnessed to affect decisions of investors, property owners, and regulatory agencies, such that fossil fuel burning operations cease running. That's what the No Coal, No Gas campaign seeks to do with its focus on shutting down New England's last coal-burning power plant, Merrimack Station, in Bow, New Hampshire. No Coal, No Gas, which launched its first protest against the power plant in 2019, returned to Bow on October 3 for a day of mass action. In addition to a rally on an adjacent ball field and a flotilla of kayaktivists, in the Merrimack River, campaign members planted gardens on company property, including a bed hacked out with pickaxes in the middle of an access road. After several state police cruisers arrived and dozens of officers in full riot gear marched in from behind the gardeners, 18 people were arrested. Speaking at the rally attended by about 200 people, Mary Fight, a Bow resident, focused her comments on the plant's Connecticut-based owner, Granite Shore Power, a joint venture of Atlas Holdings and Castleton Commodities. With her three children and partner at her side, she charged, quote, They don't care about your health, and they don't care about your children. They don't care about future generations. Granite Shore Power does not care about climate change or the future of planet Earth. As the crowd cheered, Fight added a rallying cry. Granite Shore Power wants to intimidate residents and invalidate our concerns. But here we are. Katie Lassard, a Bow High School student, also spoke, telling the rally-goers, quote, As a young person, it's really important for us to take action in shutting down the climate crisis before it's too late. Because if left unchecked, it will have worse and worse effects for my generation. 
she noted that most of her peers agreed as well. The demonstration was the latest in the No Coal, No Gas campaign, which is backed by 350NH and the Climate Disobedience Center. Arrest is not the goal, commented organizer Isaac Peterson after the arrestees had been taken away. Civil resistance is just one of the nonviolent tools the campaign employs, he said. The October 3 action followed months of planning, weeks of training, and a weekend action camp held at Pitch Perfect, a woodsy campground in Canterbury, New Hampshire, about 15 miles north of the power plant. Quote, I support what they're doing wholeheartedly, said Leanne Mackey, owner of the rustic campground where activists pitched tents, shared meals, held workshops, made banners, and organized plans. They also learned and sang songs, including one with gardening lyrics. They tried to bury us. They didn't know we were seeds. Another, Greg Greenway's Do What Must Be Done, lent itself to slogans printed on the backs of No Coal, No Gas t-shirts. The action camp was a huge part of the action, explained Emma Shapiro-Weiss, co-director of 350NH. It established an opportunity for, quote, a lot of new people having conversations with each other about what nonviolence looks like, why we are here, why we are doing this work, why we are spending a whole weekend with each other in the middle of nowhere, New Hampshire, and challenging this coal plant. Importantly, the camp also helped build trust among participants, as it was a prerequisite for anyone considering civil disobedience. As Shapira Weiss explained, recalling the group's imperative, quote, if you're going to be with us taking action on Sunday, you've got to be in camp on Saturday. Participants attended workshops on the campaign's history and strategy, discussed nonviolence and how the movement addresses generational and racial diversity. There was plenty of time for large group circles, small group discussions, banner painting, and preparation for the Sunday action. No Coal, No Gas launched in 2019 when a few climate activists removed coal from the piles outside the Bow Power Plant, later dumping it on the State House lawn in Concord to demand that the state act to end the use of fossil fuels. Later that year, a larger group returned to Bow, this time dressed in Tyvek suits and carrying empty buckets, as if to say, we'll stop the use of coal if we have to remove it bucket by bucket. 67 people were arrested for criminal trespass. While many of them accepted plea bargain sentences, 19 have appealed to the Superior Court for a new trial, which has not yet been scheduled. One of them, the Reverend Kendra Ford of Portsmouth, was back on October 3. Quote, The plant is still burning coal, and we want it to stop burning coal, so I have to come back, she said. During the winter of 2019-2020, No Coal, No Gas staged nonviolent blockades of trains carrying coal to Bow. Police arrested coal train protesters in several Massachusetts towns, as well as at a railroad bridge in Hooksett, New Hampshire. Five cases from the train blockades are still pending in court, according to Climate Disobedience Center's Marla Markham, who's keeping track of all the legal entanglements. The point, they say, is to show what is possible beyond the specifics of any one action. All too often, conversations around climate change are constrained by the concept of political feasibility instead of being guided by moral necessity. We commit 
to taking moral action to do what must be done and hope to show that collective resistance and a just transition are both necessary and possible, says a statement on the campaign's website. No Coal, No Gas lists building unity and community as its top goal, above even stopping the burning of coal. That goal was served by the Action Camp, which for 350 NH's Emma Shapiro-Weiss meant, quote, being in community with some people that I've been in community with for years and lots of people that we're bringing in, new perspectives and new ideas. Finally, the No Coal, No Gas website says, quote, We aim to shut down the last coal-fired power plant in New England not already slated for closure. By using creative nonviolent confrontation, we will unmask the violence happening in Bow and around the world. It's always been a nonviolent direct action campaign, Shapiro Weiss said. Nonviolence has enabled us to reach a huge audience to create relationships that I really don't see in other campaigns. Skill building and relationships have also enabled no coal, no gas campaigners to resist other environmental threats, for example, by joining the movement against the Line 3 pipeline in Minnesota. From the time she joined the 350NH staff in 2019, Involvement in No Coal, No Gas campaign introduced Shapira Weiss to, quote, a wonderful regional group of organizers and people that were really saying no to the fossil fuel industry, to the destruction of our world, and figuring out how we were going to build the world we want to see. In addition to the demonstrations on train tracks and at the power plant, No Coal, No Gas has also organized a utility bill payment strike and tried to influence decisions of ISO New England, a relatively obscure agency that oversees the regional power grid under the oversight of the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, or FERC. It is only through ISO's subsidies that Granite Shore Power is able to keep the fires burning at Bow. That means, as Isaac Peterson explained during one of the Action Camp workshops, the ISO is one of the organizations that has the power to shut down the Bow coal plant. According to ISO data, coal provides only 0.15% of the region's electricity, compared to more than 3% for wind and more than 2% for solar. Rather than providing baseload capacity, the Bow plant fires up only on the hottest and coldest days. Since it's otherwise uneconomical to keep a power plant operating for only a few days a year, Granite Shore depends on subsidies or, quote, forward capacity payments built into the rate structure to remain profitable. As Bow resident Mary Fight put it during the rally, they will try and keep this plant going as long as profits are there, as long as it's being funded by us. They will keep on taking handouts to stay online. Untangling the technical details has required the campaign to develop what one activist called a high level of nerddom. At the time of the last subsidy auction, No Coal, No Gas generated about 100 comments submitted to ISO and FERC to deny ongoing subsidies to Granite Shore. They have also held demonstrations outside the ISO's Holyoke, Massachusetts offices. The campaign is now organizing another round of comments to the FERC. As an October 20 alert put it, quote, We are sending public comments to FERC's new Office of Public Participation demanding that they require ISO and E to prioritize renewable energy and climate justice. 
ISO New England seemed quite alarmed by the 100 comments we submitted to FERC last March. Let's see how they react to even more comments. Planning for a week of demonstrations focused on Granite Shores Power Corporate owners, both of which are headquartered in southwestern Connecticut, is also underway. No Coal, No Gas operates with mass calls, affinity groups, working groups, such as one focused on the ISO, and a coordinating committee that meets regularly and is open to all campaigners. Support from 350NH and Climate Disobedience Center staff provides continuity in what's mostly a volunteer-driven project. Regular onboarding sessions, often coupled with one-on-one -on -one meetings, are held to invite and orient newcomers to the campaign's goals and plans. They know their openness makes it possible for the power company and police to keep an eye on them, but through their community-building activity, they believe they can protect themselves from infiltration. Quote, On the whole, we want to be as open as possible, Shapira Weiss said. We're not hiding who we are. This is what we're doing. Come and join us. When the campaign succeeds in stopping the burning of coal in Bow, organizers say the no-gas part of the equation will be brought forward. Atlas Holdings has already converted one coal plant in upstate New York to gas. The company is using the power to mine Bitcoin, a process which uses massive amounts of electricity to run huge banks of computers. According to a recent New York Times article, the process of creating Bitcoin consumes more energy than is used by Finland, a nation of about 5.5 million. But Atlas says Bitcoin mining at its Dresden, New York power plant complements the quote, power plant's unique commitment to environmental stewardship. It's wild. It sounds like a conspiracy theory, Shapira Weiss commented. After months of planning, the October 3 demonstration required some last-minute adjustments by organizers. Unlike the 2019 demonstration, when the Bow police posted no parking signs along one side of the road to Merrimack Station, both sides of the road were posted on October 3. Campaigners adapted by parking miles away and carpooling to the site. No coal, no gas activists ran into similar trouble when the boat ramp, which they thought they had permission to launch their kayaks from, was blocked off with chains. Restricted access, law enforcement, fire, police, or rescue only, read the bold-faced signs, by what is normally Bo's only access to the river. Kayaktivists adapted by launching their boats across the river in Allenstown instead. Shapira Weiss, who was one of the activists planting the garden in the middle of Merrimack Station's access road, said she was stunned by the overwhelming police presence. I had this weird moment when I was being arrested, she said. I was the final person taken and found myself surrounded by riot cops and just took a moment to take it in, she said to herself. This is what the state, this is what the fossil fuel industry will do to protect this big, outdated, ancient asset. Instead of protecting us, the people, and taking action against the climate crisis. Without missing a beat, Shapira Weiss boldly stated, this is why we are doing this. And next we go to another battle, a battle uh, successfully won for now down in Mexico. This piece is published at vice.com. 
and is written by Nathaniel Janowitz. In a real-life David versus Goliath moment, a small group of Mexican activists just won a major battle in a long-standing legal dispute with big farming monolith Bear Monsanto and other chemical and seed companies. Mexico's Supreme Court just rejected appeals by companies including Bear Monsanto, Singanta, and Corteva and voted to ratify an injunction that restricts the cultivation of genetically modified corn. The injunction was submitted in 2013 by a small group of activists and has effectively stopped Monsanto, which was bought by Bayer in 2018, and other companies from turning Mexico's massive and culturally important corn industry into genetically modified organisms for eight years. It's a remarkable story, Timothy Wise, a senior advisor at the Institute for Agriculture and Trade Policy and author of the book Eating Tomorrow, which details the case, told Vice World News. How are these pesky little underfunded groups with their inexperienced legal teams taking on these freaking companies? The legal fight began in 2013 when a group called Demanda Colectiva in Defensa del Mes de Nativo, or the Collective Lawsuit in Defense of Native Corn in English, petitioned the Mexican government to halt the use of genetically modified corn because the country's constitution guarantees the right to a clean environment. The coalition of farmer, consumer, and environmental groups that makes up the collective argued that genetically modified corn causes cross-pollination and endangers native corn varieties, which is a staple of Mexican culture, cuisine, and its environment. The court agreed that the collective had a right to have their petition heard, and ordered a precautionary injunction that stopped the companies from planting genetically modified corn until then. Over the past eight years, the petition has still yet to be heard, and the injunction has remained in place even though Bear Monsanto and other companies have submitted dozens of appeals. Throughout, the lawyers and activists from the collective have stood their ground and weathered the company's legal challenges, and the October ruling by the Supreme Court has shut down their appeals once and for all. With no date in place for the petition to be heard, the injunction remains against the multinational corporations. The collective released a statement celebrating the ruling as an important decision, but noted that we still have a long way to go to achieve the definitive ban on transgenic corn in Mexico, an action that will guarantee the preservation and protection of native corn, of the milpa, of the rights of peasants to a healthy environment. But while their petition will eventually be heard in court, Wise believe that the injunction played a crucial role in saving the Mexican corn industry from GMOs because previous governments, quote, were on the side of the companies. During the presidencies of Felipe Calderon and Enrique Peña Nieto, according to Wise, the Mexican government supported the use of genetically modified corn in Mexico. In other words, it wasn't just the companies against the collective. It was the companies and the government against the collective, he said. But even so, the collective was able to win several court cases where the company tried to appeal the injunction. Then in 2018, Mexico saw a change of the guard when Andres Manuel López Obrador won the presidency with a mandate to support the country's disenfranchised, which included many rural farmers involved in the corn industry. 
Lopez Obrador rang in 2021 by making a presidential decree on New Year's Eve to get rid of the cultivation and importation of genetically modified corn entirely, entirely in Mexico. That's a massive shift in the government's position relative to this judicial case, said Wise. He called the change in government in Mexico the biggest loss that the companies have faced. Because even if they win in court on the petition now, I think all that would really signify is that for some reason the court does not recognize that the Constitution protects Mexican citizens from the contamination of their environment, he said. The government could still restrict GMO plantings and ban them, which is what is on track to do already with the presidential decree. But, in his opinion, the small group of activists who maintained the injunction for years are the heroes who blocked the use of GMOs on the corn industry until the government finally landed on the side of the small farmers and peasants in the affected areas. Quote, It's absolutely certain that if the injunction hadn't been in place and the collective hadn't stepped up, there would have been a much stronger and certainly more successful push to get GMOs commercially grown in Mexico. So there's a couple stories about battling against the challenges that are facing us. Climate change, the uh, pollution, the contamination of our environment, um, and all of those struggles and all of those fights are really, really important fights to have. I have a separate podcast called People Are Revolting, which covers daily stories about people protesting, people fighting back in a variety of different ways against those harms that they are seeing, they are feeling um, in their lives. In addition to that really, really critical and important work to kind of minimize the harms, we need to do more. We need to build replacements for the structures, for the institutions that do the harm. These will be in small steps. These will be gradual changes. This won't be revolution, but it will be revolutionary. It will build the foundation that will be needed when the current structures and systems ultimately fail, ultimately collapse. And they likely will. Many of our current structures and institutions, like our economic system of capitalism, one of the biggest that has the most wide-ranging impacts on all of us, and in fact on all people globally, um, they're being propped up, they're being supported by governments, by the people who profit from them. Those people have a lot of power to support these structures, to make them continue to work as long as they can make them continue to drive profits for themselves and for their supporters in the case of politicians. So, it will be quite a long time before that comes. But in the meantime, we don't have to wait. We don't have to wait until that changes. We can build small institutions. We can build small organizations. We can build small companies that replace those 
institutions that are now relied on in our society. Here are some examples of that future that are happening now. First up is a story written by Audrey Henderson. This is published at energynews.us. Solar is more than a source of power. For the community of Ho, that's H-O-U-G-H, in Cleveland, solar energy is viewed as an engine for community development and a possible template for similar projects across the country. However, challenges and potential roadblocks remain, including the ongoing coronavirus pandemic, along with the issue of utility ownership of community-based solar developments. Like many communities of color across the country, and especially in the Rust Belt, the Ho neighborhood in Cleveland has weathered a number of setbacks. Redlining especially created a massive gap in home ownership within the predominantly black community of Ho, and white Cleveland residents. However, there is growing hope for reducing this disparity, as well as increasing the economic well-being in the entire area. One important element is a $3.55 million grant from the George Gund Foundation for the Go Green Energy Fund awarded in November 2020. The fund uses a green bank model designed to finance small-scale commercial, industrial, and community-based solar projects like the one in Ho, across Ohio. Quote, We want to bring relevant financial solutions, relevant civic solutions to bear, and communities that haven't felt they've always had access to it, said Michael Jeans, president and CEO of Growth Opportunity Partners, also known as Growth Ops, which administers the Go Green Energy Fund. The grant will provide funding for a community solar program in Ho that will provide approximately one megawatt of clean energy for Eastside communities through the Cleveland Public Power Grid. The solar program will be administered and operated by the Ho Block Club, a community-wide initiative also known as the BC that launched in 2019. Quote, Love of our community bonded us together, and a zeal to leave a black generational legacy stirs us to action, said R.C. Petty, program director for the BC, via email. In that vein, the BC was formed as a conduit to build wealth for future generations, to incorporate economic and health benefits of environmental sustainability to communities, and to strengthen the invigoration of the neighborhood organically. The project will use a partnership flip model where the organization will split costs with a yet-to-be-named solar developer with an option to buy out the developer's share at the end of the agreement, Petty said. The BC would then own 100% of the project. 
Community ownership and control is an essential element to building equity in programs like the Ho Solar Array, according to Jonathan Well, executive director of the nonprofit Cleveland Owns, which is providing technical assistance to the BC. The BC is really the ideal project, Well said. It's a super grassroots group. It's local neighbors coming together with a huge vision, a powerful vision. They're very focused on racial equity and racial justice. That's a common theme for us across a lot of these projects. And so that means that we're centering the voices and needs of mostly black homeowners who have lived, lived in a neighborhood that's been disinvested in for the past 50 years. The residents I work with live with that reality every day and understand exactly what's happening. They've been able to say very clearly that they need to see change. And for them, this project is an example of that. Once the solar array has been constructed, Ho residents would be able eligible for connection via subscription using virtual net metering. They would also be able to make upfront investments and purchase shares once the BC has achieved full ownership. Local businesses would also be eligible for subscriptions, Petty said. But the vision extends beyond lowering utility bills to a future where the array produces energy in excess of the amount needed by subscribers. At that point, resident-owned shares could allow them to build equity they can sell or borrow against to finance additional home improvements, Gene said. We anticipate that the latter phases of this project will allow for weatherization and better efficiencies in the homes, whether it's replacing old furnaces or insulating new rooftops, potentially even putting solar arrays on rooftops so that we can reduce consumption, which increases the value of the overall project and therefore the shares as well, Gene said. Other programs to be administered by the BC include pharmacy training and COVID-19 vaccination clinics, for Ho residents, as well as workshops to improve financial literacy and raise environmental awareness, Petty said. The BC has also obtained a grant to provide funding for home weatherization according to a PowerPoint presentation. A February 2020 report from Cleveland Owns cites the Ho initiative as a potential template for other community-based solar operations to generate economic prosperity and promote racial equity, along with promoting clean energy an assessment with which Petty wholly agrees. Quote, The BC sees not only its work as an organization, but also the business model of the solar garden to be scalable and replicable, Petty said. This can be done anywhere because all communities have people who are empathetic to understand broad issues, those who are planners and long-range visionaries, and those who are pragmatic in implementing ideas. It is just a matter of having the initiative to bring them together. The Cleveland Owns Report, produced in collaboration with Cooperative Energy Futures and the Institute for Local Self-Reliance, outlines an ambitious roadmap of 30 policies and program guidelines intended to ensure community ownership and active involvement by low- and moderate-income households, as well as communities that bear a disproportionate burden of industry-created pollution. According to the report, which was co-authored by Well, a community solar program of 50 megawatts could potentially create 554 jobs and have an economic impact of $96 million. Community solar can also resolve the dilemma of high upfront costs, said Dr. Gabriel Chan, an assistant professor at the Humphrey School of Public Affairs at the University of Minnesota, 
who also contributed to the Cleveland Owens report. Community solar generally is a model that allows individual energy users to take advantage of or benefit from the increasingly favorable economics of solar, Chan said. There's a million stories about how cheap solar has become. That creates a lot of opportunities and having a really cheap form of energy. Those opportunities, though, are hard to capture because all the costs of solar are up front. You only get those benefits back over time. Another important equity aspect, aspect of community solar programs is the opportunity for renters and others that would traditionally be shut out of investing in solar power to do so. The payback has maybe moved from 15-year payback to an 8-year payback, and so there's a lot of opportunity in that. But it still requires being able to access capital or finance and have the right supporting infrastructure to benefit from that, Chan said. And not everyone can do that. And particularly residents, residential customers have a hard time doing that. You have your own roof. Renters have almost no opportunity to take advantage of that because they don't own the property. People who live in dense communities and inner cities can't take advantage of it because of lack of space. So where community solar comes in is it provides an opportunity for everyone. Community-administered solar-based initiatives could not only play a vital role in reducing the disparity in the financial burden of utility bills in low-income households, but it could leverage a general transition to a more equitable clean energy scenario, Chan said. We're treating community solar that considers equity as something special, he said. Well, what would it look like to think of it as the default, to think about our energy transition and its role in transforming not just the energy sector, but all of the societal impacts that come along with the energy system. Chan noted a recent study showing low-income customers have a flatter load profile than high-income customers. As we start to think about bringing in new energy sources, could we use those energy sources to actually adjust the pricing so that it's closer in alignment to the costs that are incurred, the costs that are the responsibility of the users and the community, Chan said. Grounding community solar developments within the communities being served is one of the best means of ensuring that such initiatives are scalable and transferable to other communities, according to Dr. Gilbert Michaud at the School of Environmental Sustainability at Loyola University in Chicago, also a contributor to the Cleveland Owns report. Quote, the solar project in Ho is certainly replicable in other communities, Michaud said in an email. This project offers an affordable way to participate in the renewable energy transition, and many other cities could follow suit, especially to target involvement by lower-income populations. In fact, it is through this very diffusion of innovation process that project design ideas are spread across geographies. And from Community Solar to cooperative housing. This piece is written by Anka Voinea and is published at thenews.coop. Residential buildings have a key role to play in tackling the climate crisis, not only due to their carbon footprint, but also their considerable mitigation potential. The World Green Building Council estimates that around 30% of global carbon emissions come from the energy used to heat, cool, 
and light buildings. In the EU alone, households represented 26% of final energy consumption in 2019, according to Eurostat. One of the commitments made through the Paris Agreement was avoiding 77% in total CO2 emissions in the building sector by 2050, compared to the 2015 levels. Several housing co-ops have taken the lead on the issue by pioneering green solutions. In Geneva, Switzerland, Equilibre Housing Co-op is actively trying to lower its environmental footprint by using straw bale insulation and solar panels. A renewable naturally occurring material, straw is also an excellent insulator. Straw panels are very light and can be 120 plus minute fireproof. The co-op also runs a sewage water recycling system. Big tanks of 26,000 liters are used to store rainwater, which is then used for toilets. Cooperative housing is a popular option in Switzerland. In Zurich, 18% of dwellings are housing cooperatives. Switzerland has a total of 2,000 housing co-ops, which provide 5% of the Swiss housing stock. Straw insulation was also used in the Chamarelle Les Barges co-op in Lyon, a housing co-op set up by senior citizens. The co-op's four-story building includes 14 one-bedroom apartments of 45 square meters, two two-bedroom apartments of 63 square meters, as well as public spaces on the ground floor, including two guest bedrooms, a common room with a kitchen, a workshop, a laundry room, and an office. The apartments were designed to be functional for people as they age. A similar approach was adopted by Sundance Cooperative Housing in Edmonton, Canada, which is currently undertaking a deep energy retrofit project. Construction is currently underway at the co-op's Riverdale neighborhood in Edmonton, where the objective to retrofit buildings to net zero carbon standards with a minimum amount of construction waste. As part of this, the 59 townhouses units will be encased in dense pack cellulose, while insulation made from recycled newspapers will be used into spaces between new panels and old building structures. The homes will also use green energy, including solar energy. Set up in 1978, Sundance has 78 homes, including 59 townhomes, 10 duplex units, and a 9-suite seniors' apartment. The $7.6 million Canadian dollar project is partly funded under the Green Infrastructure Phase 2 Energy Efficient Buildings RD&D program Natural Resources Canada, which will cover $2.5 million of the construction cost. Other Canadian co-ops are rising up to the climate challenge as well. The Cooperative Housing Federation of Canada, which includes 900 housing co-ops across Canada, runs a Greener Co-op microgrant program through which it allocates grants to housing co-ops for sustainability initiatives. Projects target reducing energy and water consumption, increasing food security, and enabling active transportation, among others. The program allocated a total of $130,000 to 30 co-ops across Canada this year and has won a sustainability award from the Canadian Housing Renewal Association. In New Zealand, the Peterborough Housing Cooperative in Inner City Otatahi, or Christchurch, comprises 14 townhouses around a huge central courtyard with a neighborhood house. Set up in 1982, the co-op rebuilt its houses in the aftermath of the 2011 earthquake. 
The co-op took this opportunity to rebuild as a purpose-designed pocket neighborhood, featuring warm houses that sustain around 16 to 20 degrees unheated due to 140-millimeter wall studs, wool insulation, row housing, large north-facing windows onto concrete slab, and thermally broken double glazing. The buildings have central hot water and underfloor heating systems powered by heat pumps and boosted by solar panels. Another housing co-op to have recently embarked on a renewables journey is Riverton Community Housing in Minneapolis, USA, which provides accessible, affordable student housing. Riverton, which owns the property that are operated independently by its member co-ops, has recently installed solar panel systems to provide clean energy on-site. Riverton expects 400 kilowatts of rooftop solar arrays to offset 450,000 kilowatt hours for the first year of energy production. In the longer term, the 25-year projected environmental benefits equate to over 7,000 metric tons of CO2 offset, which is equivalent to displacing 7 million pounds of burned coal, planting 190,000 trees, or taking 1,500 gasoline-driven passenger vehicles off the road for a full year. Quote, The Riverton Housing Cooperatives have always had a concern for the communities in which they are located and the environment around them. Our co-op members and staff are always looking for ways to reduce our environmental footprint, said Mary Novak, Executive Director to Riverton Community Housing. Adding solar to our buildings was not only the right thing to do, but was a fairly easy process with our project partners. We hope other multifamily owners will learn about the process and do the same thing. Some housing co-ops are also investing in research to determine what are the best climate-friendly options. HSB Sweden, a cooperative housing association with 624,000 members, runs a living lab on the Chalmers campus in Gothenburg where students and researchers are trying different products and materials and are testing different ways of living. HSB hopes to use the results from research in the HSB production of homes pioneering innovative solutions to climate challenges. And now back to a story about people fighting for a better world in their local area and succeeding. This is published at thenarwal.ca and is written by Matt Simmons. When B.C. Supreme Court Justice Emily Burke served her ruling on a long-fought case between Blueberry River First Nations and the province of British Columbia in late June, unequivocally determining the B.C. government breached the nation's treaty rights by permitting and encouraging widespread resource extraction, she noted B.C.'s regulatory regime for industrial development is broken. It was a precedent-setting decision, the first to find that cumulative impacts can add up to a breach of treaty rights, and it could have sweeping implications for oil, gas, forestry, and hydroelectric development across Canada. Quote, You've got to hope that the decision is serving as a wake-up call for BC, that structural systemic change is needed to address these issues, Gavin Smith, lawyer with West Coast Environmental Law, told the Narwhal, in an interview. While public awareness is often centered on the impacts of a particular project or single industry, such as logging or fracking, 
decades of industrial development have irrevocably altered landscapes. By 2016, for example, 73% of the Blueberry River First Nations traditional territory was within 250 meters of an industrial disturbance. The Blueberry's successful court case connected the dots between disparate industries from mining and forestry to hydroelectric dams and fracking, showing how they layer impacts on the landscape, compounding changes to ecosystems, wildlife, and ways of life. While the province has not appealed the ruling and has since committed $65 million to restore habitat and culture on the Blueberry River Nation's territory, the big lingering question is whether the province will overhaul its regulations to reduce the risk of further litigation from other impacted Indigenous communities or take a wait-and-see approach. Quote, There's an open question of whether BC will meet the challenge head-on in an honourable way or whether it will adopt and continue a pattern of deflection and delay that we saw following major Indigenous title wins like Delgamook. Smith said, referring to a groundbreaking court case on rights and title brought by Wet'suwet'en and Gitxan plaintiffs in 1997. The Delgamook case and profound win by the Silhacotan First Nation in 2014 established Indigenous rights and title as protected under Canadian law. Yet the province still permits projects like the Coastal Gas Line gas link pipeline, fiercely opposed by the Wet'suwet'en hereditary chiefs, who have continually noted the pipeline is, quote, an illegal project. The province also permitted exploratory work for a contested mine near Fish Lake, a body of water considered sacred to the Silicotan, without the nation's consent. So many are now wondering if the Blueberry Court case will accomplish what the Declamuku and Silicotan rulings so far have not. Here are six things you need to know about the implications of the Blueberry Court decision in BC and beyond. 1. The Blueberry decision has enormous implications for the Site C Dam. The Site C Dam currently under construction on the Peace River would impact Blueberry River and other Treaty 8 nations' territories. BC Hydro recently noted in its quarterly progress report the Blueberry decision could impact the project's schedule, which has already seen significant delays and cost overruns. Quote, Although BC Hydro believes that the Blueberry decision should not affect the issuance of permits because the project is approved and under construction, there remains the possibility that the timing of the issuance of provisional permits required for the completion of the project may be affected. While the Crown Corporation maintains the court decision will not stop the project in its tracks, the ruling will inevitably influence future rulings on court cases related to Site C. West Moberly First Nations, another signatory to Treaty 8, is taking the province to court on claims that BC is infringing on its treaty rights by proceeding with Site C construction. Construction and operation of the dam will cause profound and immitigable violations of the rights of West Moberly set out in Treaty 8 and guaranteed by the Constitution, Wilson wrote in an open letter to Premier John Horgan. Chris Tollefson, professor of law at the University of Victoria, told the Narwhal the Blueberry ruling will undoubtedly impact West Moberly's case. 
I think that the implications for Site C are enormous, he said in an interview. I'm sure that the lawyers on all sides of that litigation are pondering the path forward. I don't think this was a development in the law that was necessarily expected, but it is a game changer for the Site C litigation. He noted it's particularly significant the province didn't appeal the court ruling. It's presumed to state the law accurately, and that decision now becomes the law, at least in British Columbia, binding on all parties and in particular upon the government. It is especially persuasive in relation to Treaty 8, of course, and that's the same treaty to which the West Moberly has subscribed. The trial is expected to begin in March 2022. Number 2. The landmark Blueberry River decision will have impacts for Indigenous rights across Canada. The impacts of the court ruling could extend beyond provincial borders, according to legal analysts. A team of lawyers at Osler, a firm with offices in Canada and New York, noted the decision is precedent-setting for Indigenous communities, with established treaty agreements in summary published after the ruling. Quote, Many parts of Canada have seen material population growth, infrastructure, and or resource development since the time that historic treaties with Indigenous groups were entered into, the authors wrote. We expect the ruling will lead to similar cumulative effect claims across Canada, particularly across the prairies in northern Ontario, with historic numbered treaties similar to Treaty 8. Tollefson agreed and called the ruling a landmark decision. It represents really the first time that the government's treaty obligations, in particular in this case Treaty 8, have been assessed in the context of ongoing and profound adverse cumulative effects, he said. He noted that litigation based on the precedent set by this ruling is possible, and perhaps even probable, but it could also serve as a means to avoid costly and time-consuming court cases. Nations that sign these treaties now have a new argument to bring to the table in dealing with resource company and governments, he said, adding the ruling also impacts Indigenous communities without treaties. In 2019, B.C. became the first province or territory in Canada to pass legislation towards adopting the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People, UNDRIP, and just this year, the province released a draft list of 79 actions it would take to achieve this. Those actions include a mandate for government to receive the free, prior, and informed consent of affected Indigenous groups on development projects. Number 3. B.C. taxpayers are on the hook for expensive litigation costs and loss of revenue. The province has long argued it had to proceed with the Site C dam due to the sunk costs, which currently has a projected final price tag of $16 billion. But the court ruling and impending West Moberly trial could render those arguments meaningless. The ruling has other economic impacts as well. Every time the province ends up in a court as a defendant, the costs associated with fighting the case come from public coffers. The Ministry of the Attorney General told the Narwhal it could not provide the costs of litigation associated with the Blueberry River First Nations court case. Quote, Legal billing information, including the amount of fees and disbursements, is protected by solicitor-client privilege and will not be disclosed, a ministry spokesman told the Narwhal in an email. This Blueberry River hearing was a very complex proceeding, and I'm sure that it was extremely expensive, Smith, with West Coast Environmental Law, said. Almost more importantly, though, 
is the financial costs and implications of the Crown having to deal with these cases on multiple fronts if it fails to uphold its obligation to take care of cumulative effects. He added there's an additional financial risk if the province is unable to approve projects based on the court ruling and others that may follow. What we see in the Blueberry River decision is the court basically saying, okay, enough, stop these approvals until you deal with the cumulative impact of your decisions on Indigenous land and title, and that risks exist elsewhere. The risk of lost revenue comes at the province as the province faces increasing criticism for subsidizing fossil fuel extraction. Number four, BC needs to manage cumulative impacts or risks further litigation. The court decision found the province's cumulative effects framework insufficient and in most cases not even being applied. So BC now has a choice. It can either act quickly to beef up the framework and start applying it everywhere in the province or risk the possibility of an onslaught of lawsuits. One of the biggest challenges in connecting the dots between industries and managing cumulative impacts from a policy perspective is each industry is governed by its own regulatory regime. For example, the BC Oil and Gas Commission oversees fracking and pipelines, and the Ministry of Forests, Lands, and Natural Resource Operations and Rural Development manages forestry, while the Ministry of Environment and Climate Change Strategy handles environmental assessments and approvals for major projects. Justice Burke acknowledged the difficulty of developing a system to take into account the combined impacts of multiple industries. It's clear that the process of developing a cumulative effects assessment that can apply to the whole of the province and be tailored to specific regions is a monumental task, she wrote in her ruling, but added the province has not given its decision makers sufficient tools to address impacts, nor has it responded quickly enough to a 2015 Auditor General report that flagged numerous flaws in the province's cumulative effects framework. Much of what the Auditor General said in 2015 regarding lack of progress on cumulative effect assessment and management remains true today. She chastised the province for dragging its heels on implementing an effective system to assess and manage cumulative effects. Quote, it has been nearly 10 years since the province signed off on a charter to undertake this work. It is five years past the date when the province said, in response to the Auditor General's report, that its cumulative effects policy would have a province-wide implementation, she wrote. Meanwhile, development continues to proceed apace, notwithstanding some pauses due to the pandemic. Number five, BC can no longer authorize industrial activity without Blueberry River First Nations approval. At a recent press conference, Blueberry River First Nations Chief Marvin Yahi said his community had been trying for decades to stop the province from authorizing more and more projects. We felt fear, anger, helplessness, and so much frustration as we tried for years to get government to listen, Chief Yahi said. Justice Burke gave the province until the end of December to negotiate and navigate the changes necessary to move forward with any future industrial development on Blueberry River First Nations territory. The nation and the province recently agreed to allow 195 previously approved forestry and oil and gas projects to proceed, while hitting the pause button on 20 projects that have the potential to impact areas of significant cultural 
and ecological importance. When the six-month deferral period is up, the province can no longer authorize any industrial activities that, quote, breach the promises included in the treaty, including the province's honorable and fiduciary obligations associated with the treaty, or that unjustifiably infringe Blueberry's exercise of its treaty rights. This means the nation will be in a position to say no to any proposed projects on the basis of cumulative impacts. As part of its action plan to implement UNDRIP, the BC government proposes a more robust system around treaties, in particular fulfilling the obligations laid out in treaties. Quote, the treaty implementation infrastructure commitment will likely be given even more focus in light of the recent decision in the BC Supreme Court, which concluded that the BC government had infringed the treaty rights of the Blueberry River First Nations through the cumulative impacts of provincially authorized industrial development in their traditional territory, according to a summary of the action plan on the law firm McCarthy Tetrault's website. Number six. The Blueberry River ruling is giving other Treaty 8 nations hope for assessment of cumulative impacts. Neighboring Treaty 8 territories such as Salto First Nations and West Moberly First Nations are also disproportionately impacted by industrial development. Bud Napoleon Duneza Cree Trapper, former chief of Salto and the first chief of Treaty 8 Tribal Association, told the Narwhal he has been trying to stop the province from permitting an onslaught of development for over four decades. We told them that your policies and the way you guys do things is ass backwards, he said in an interview. In the late 1970s, as much of his territory was being clear-cut, he told the province permits should not be issued by B.C., they should be issued by First Nations, and he advocated for consultation that afforded the nation time to speak with elders and to go out on the land to assess the potential impacts of a proposed project. He said little has changed over the intervening decades, and the impacts to Salto territory continue, with the province issuing logging permits for vast clear-cuts and allowing companies to spray herbicides to suppress deciduous growth. He added cumulative impacts aren't limited to industry, noting the province permits rangers to pasture cattle on Salto territory, areas where cattle graze can no longer be used for berry picking or gathering medicinal plants, and because elk and moose leave the area when cows are present, community members struggle to fill their freezers. All that has been done without our consent and without our involvement, he said. Napoleon said the Blueberry River court decision is an opportunity for nations like Salto to force the province to listen. Maybe with this court case we can turn around and step on a few toes, he said. The Ministry of Indigenous Relations and Reconciliation told the Narwhal in an emailed statement it is looking into what the court ruling means to other Treaty 8 nations. The province has a responsibility to consider the court's findings on provincial regulatory regimes, cumulative effects, processes, and scope of Treaty 8 rights for any ongoing consultation and engagement with other Treaty 8 nations, a spokesperson wrote. As we move forward, we will consider other implications of the decision for the Treaty 8 area and the province more broadly, including the court's criticism of the processes by which cumulative impacts are assessed and managed. 
And what this story and the earlier story about, about corn in Mexico show that when we fight, we win. And clearly not always do we win. And maybe even not even half of the time do we win. But some of the time we win. If we don't fight, we, we can't win. If we don't oppose those things that could be harmful or are harmful, then they will continue until the profiteers, until they become unprofitable to the profiteers. So when we fight, we do win. We need to celebrate those wins because we often don't win. In fact, my other podcast called Polyrical, which is about political music, I feature a particular topic each episode and play four songs related to that topic in some way. Episode 137 which came out a few weeks ago, uh, the topic of that episode was losing because when we fight, we often do lose. We have to be prepared for the loss, to learn from the loss, to move forward. Um, so, but, but without the fight, we can never win. So the fights are really, really important. Next up is a piece published at befreedom.co. This is written by Richard Moser. Workers are walking out. After decades of retreat, it might just be that workers are coming into their own as a force for social change. Forty years of punishing austerity in a two-tiered labor system, pitting new, temporary, or part-time workers against regular workers, have finally found the lowest pay and conditions workers will tolerate. The risk of death and illness from COVID was a profound trigger magnifying an already dire situation. The bosses race to the bottom, finally found the bottom. The working class is cornered, but the working class is fighting back. It's a two-pronged labor revolt, an organized strike wave, and an unorganized but much larger movement in which millions of workers are quitting their damn jobs. The corporate media is calling it the Great Resignation. It's less polite than that. Millions have simply walked off without giving notice. They are not looking back. This is good news. The only way for us to learn how to exercise power is to practice exerting it. The strike wave and the record-setting walkouts are so full of promise because the people are acting on their own behalf on their own interests, both collective and individual. We hope people will see the connection between the two. Will the millions of discontented worker workers form unions? Will the unions field an army of organizers to help out? Workers have reached the breaking point, but not before inequality reached epic proportions, and COVID revealed just how little the bosses cared if we live or die. $50 trillion have been redistributed to the 1% since the mid-1970s, with the corporate-bought politicians playing bagman. And as teams of scholars studying wealth inequality have suggested, this problem cannot be resolved through normal means. The same researchers found that pandemics sometimes redistribute wealth. At first, the COVID crisis led to a concentration of wealth unprecedented in its speed and scope. 
Corporations and their political servants saw the pandemic as a business opportunity or a chance to loot the public treasury instead of a public health crisis. But what goes up must come down, and maybe, just maybe, it's our turn. There is nothing better than the power of a good example. Strikes have been on the rise since 2017, and 1,600 strikes have been recorded by Payday Strike Tracker since the pandemic began. Wildcat strikes and non-union workers were the cutting edge of the initial COVID strike wave. The current strike wave has shifted towards existing unions and national contracts with the rank and file leading the way. Remember the deer workers rejected the first UAW contract. Bottom-up momentum will intensify internal conflict such as we are already seeing in the Teamsters election. The Carpenters struggle over picketing and the discontent with the IATSE tentative agreement. The strike wave will also push conflicts within the ruling class as the Liberals push for incremental change while the hardliners double down, demanding even more blood sacrifice. Either way, it's a strategic difference over the best route to preserving and securing their power and position. At Kellogg and Deere, that's John Deere, workers are rejecting not just low pay, but also a system, the two-tiered labor system. The two-tier system has been one of the structural weapons used by bosses to break workers' solidarity, weaken unions, and lower wages and benefits. Two-tier systems were innovated by the liberal management of higher education beginning in the mid-1970s when the corporatization of education and austerity kicked in. The evil genius of two-tier systems is that it entices existing workers with minor privileges and short-term benefits while luring new hires with the promise of work experience or at least survival. The two-tier system makes class traders out of people by encouraging them to sell out the next generation of workers. Bill Gates's big invention was not some smart computer program, but the permatemp, permanent temporary workers. Amazon relies on millions of seasonal and part-time workers baited by bonuses and then trapped by non-compete contracts. Half of Google's global workforce is part-time or temporary. If workers can break the two-tiered labor system, then we will have a fighting chance to rebuild the labor movement. The Great Walkout is an unorganized yet powerful game-changer for workers because it has altered the labor market. The end of the meager unemployment benefits has not pushed workers back to poverty wages and abusive management. Even marginal changes to the labor market can have considerable impacts because staffing is already stretched so thin. We are already overworked with millions working multiple jobs. The fear of COVID deaths and illness are powerful motivations for staying home or seeking safer jobs. Vaccine mandates when used by management as a way of breaking unions or attacking workers will add up, will add to the upheaval. The Pilots Union at Southwest put it this way, quote, We want to be perfectly clear. SWAPA is not anti-vaccination, but we do believe that it is our role to represent the health and safety of our pilots and bring their concerns to the company. We will not sit idly by while the company blatantly ignores our legal right 
to represent you. The combination of strike wave and walk-off will intensify conflict within the labor movement. Will the loyalty of union officials to the Democratic Party's weak incrementalism be stronger than their loyalty to their own members and the working class in general? Will class collaboration or class struggle shape negotiation strategies? General strike or general election? There is talk of a general strike again. It is unlikely that a general strike can be organized without a major rank-and-file upheaval that changes labor leadership. But a general strike will never happen unless we keep the idea alive. The only time recently even a few labor officials mentioned a general strike was to halt Trump's Stop the Steal campaign. Well, January 6th came and went, and there was no action at all. I can only guess that the specter of independent worker action on the national stage was just too scary to consider for the party bosses that hold sway over labor strategy. For them, it was better to let the ruling class deal with the rioters and to support increased funding for the Capitol Police. If some modest concessions can be won in Congress, I am all for it. But the strike wave and walk-off are good evidence that it is far better to vote with your feet than electing lesser evil politicians and lobbying the trusted servants of the corporate class. Austerity is not over, but it's possible that we are turning a corner. But the pandemic and tight labor markets alone will not produce democracy. That must be fought for. If everyday workers can force the strike weapon and organizing into the center of labor strategy and repurpose the millions funneled to the Democratic Party, then we will see a new form of pressure far stronger than phone banking and GOTV efforts. Electoral politics may not be a total dead end, but it's sure as hell a long, winding detour compared to direct confrontation with the corporations that dominate both the workplace and the electoral process. Why lobby the politicians when you can challenge their masters? And finally, for this episode, a piece from yesmagazine.org, written by Gabes Torres. The Pursuit of Rest Under Capitalism It has been a month since I left the so-called United States after 10 years of living there as a migrant. I have been staying in the countryside on an island outside of the West. It is where I spent a significant portion of my childhood. The pace is slower. The natural beauty is lush. Rarely are there any sirens. No industrial landscapes. No overheard conversations about the Monday rush or corporate life. I thought that my nervous systems had all the reasons to be calm, and yet my body can still feel the collective fatigue and political unrest happening on a global scale, no matter my geographical distance from the supposed epicenters of chaos. We've endured nearly two years of what feels like eons. Uprisings against white supremacist delusions and racialized violence, an ongoing border crisis, a widening conversation about a class struggle that is centuries old, an international economic decline, and threats to global food security, more climate catastrophes, a growing awareness of U.S.-funded genocides and international human rights violations, and, of course, 
a crown-shaped, merciless virus that is many of us on our knees. The pandemic exacerbated but mostly unveiled all that's already been active in our everyday lives, societal, systemic, and interpersonal oppression and inequities. It feels like a reckoning, not a reckoning to come, but a reckoning that is now. This level of global fatigue and political unrest hauled our bodies to a different level of capacity stretching us to certain lengths we never imagined we could hold. We are disproportionately re-traumatized, disoriented, dissociated, and depleted. More than before, these times make it necessary to access rest and fortification for bodies as finite as ours, so that we may return to the daily functioning and presence. But in our capitalistic society, we feel as though rest is more a burden than a right. With the colonial structures we exist in, to understand and pursue rest has to be politicized. The politicization of rest and care may ask questions like, when I purchase a product for my livelihood and self-care practices, where will my money go? Will it ultimately go to authorities and companies that fund bills and laws that I do not agree with? Will they fund inhumane policies and pipelines? Who are the ones who get to experience a more satisfactory sense of relief and rest, but more importantly, at whose expense? Is it ever possible to pursue and experience refreshment and joy outside of capitalism? Now, back to the countryside. Upon returning, I have been surrounded by a type of community that seems to have a natural impulse to help one another without state, quote, assistance. Because governments in the majority of the global South have failed to provide sufficient relief aid during this pandemic. This then creates demand for community-led efforts to meet people's basic needs with immediacy. In the West, this is called mutual aid. The practice and concept of mutual aid are quite normal in my current whereabouts. It is normal to the extent that it does not even bear a name. While this is an admirable aspect of collectivist cultures, romanticizing this social structure during a time of great need might distract from realizing that the normalcy of mutual aid and community-led structures are preceded by the normalcy of poverty and the maldistribution of access and resources. This is especially the case within countries that have histories and present realities of colonization and European imperialism, both of which are fueled by the drive to advance economic prosperity. In other words, capitalism. These community-oriented relationship structures are antithetical to capitalist ones. The setup in capitalism is that a person has to pull someone else down in order to survive. This imposition invokes the spirit of competition and it commodifies the fear of scarcity. It ruptures our sense of belonging and interconnectedness that shows how our survival and rest are dependent on one another's, a reality that hyper-individualized North America 
sets us up to forget and neglect. No wonder we are tired. Could it be that the fragmentation of our relations has been a fundamental cause of our exhaustion? We were already so far apart from one another, and even more so now, being to some degree mandated to isolate ourselves, is there a way we can strive for more? In her essay called Pandemic is a Portal, Arundhati Roy writes, Historically, pandemics have forced humans to break with the past and imagine their world anew. This one is no different. It is a portal, a gateway between one world and the next. Here we learn that there could be more to the experience than our lives of capitalist and individualist impulses. There can be more. But something I might have missed as I envisioned a new and interconnected world is that perhaps its spirit and structures are already here. I've witnessed glimpses of it here in the countryside, here in the non-Western regions of the world. Communities have an innate understanding that each person's survival and flourishing depends on everybody else's. Somehow they intuitively know that rest is only possible because of community and mutuality. Perhaps if we inspect more closely, those who are in the West have also shown anti-capitalist ways of experiencing joy and rest. Rebecca Solnit writes in Hope in the Dark, quote, Most of us would say, if asked, that we live in a capitalist society. But vast amounts of how we live our everyday lives, our interactions with and commitments to family lives, friendships, avocations, membership in social, spiritual, and political organizations, are in essence non-capitalist or even anti-capitalist, full of things we do for free, out of love, and on principle. What we dream of is already present in the world. Do we have the emotional muscle to hold this nuance of being in both capitalist and anti-capitalist existences? But, more importantly, can we have the emotional muscle to cultivate the sacred inner knowing of our ecological relations and strive for a life with stronger community-led networks of care and a world without empire. I think this last piece points out the link and connections in this series of articles in this episode, the, the common thread that is connecting them. It's the future's here, though it's not dominant, it's living within the cracks of our current institutions. It's living in the cracks of capitalism. It's those things that people do and people accomplish because of the failures, because of those cracks, because of the defects. And I call them defects when they're not really defects because most everything that, that works in our economic system is there by design. design. Someone built it to work that way. They know it leaves millions and millions of people behind. They know it leaves millions and millions of people in poverty, millions and millions of people without adequate health care, hundreds of thousands of people, millions of people globally on the street with no homes. They know and understand this. It is built into the design of, of a system like capitalism. They don't give a fuck. 
the people that give a fuck, the people building the future work in those cracks. They build mutual aid networks, whether they call them mutual aid networks. Many of them do here in North America. There are some fantastic mutual aid groups across the country, especially more and more that came up during COVID. Um, but there's also many, many thousands and millions of people working in those cracks of capitalism, kind of filling those cracks, helping to try to attempt to fulfill uh, each other's needs outside of the capitalist and corporate dominated economy. Um, that is what this is about. That is where the future is. Um, that is what we have to build. That is what we have to reinforce. We have to make those, what is working inside those cracks so strong and so powerful that it forces those cracks open by fulfilling the needs that those cracks require. The future is in the cracks. That'll wrap up this episode of You Can't Be Neutral. You can check out all the back episodes of You Can't Be Neutral at youcantbeneutral.com. You can also follow on Twitter at YCBneutral. And you can listen to this and all my podcasts playing 24-7 at movingtrainradio.com. Now, a moment of zen. Thanks for listening. Ammon was a, a, I could say, a Catholic pacifist and an anarchist. And he never tired of talking about what that meant and what that meant to him. He never preached. He never tried to make you into anything that you weren't ready to be. He behaved in a certain way. That to him was a kind of speech, was his behavior. And you watched it, and you saw how things happened in his life. You saw the, the centeredness, you saw the grace, you saw the deep sense of conviction that consistently buoyed his spirits up during the hardest of times. And gradually you would try to become like that without, without being told, you understand. You would begin to figure it out. Ammon, he said, anarchy is an attitude. It's not a program. It's not a revolution. It's not a set of principles that if you subscribe to them, you're an anarchist. He, he said it's kind of like the tension between moral authority and political, moral autonomy and political authority. The tension in between the two, especially in the area of combinations, whether they're going to be coercive or voluntary. Most of us grow up uh, culturally compelled by by combinations which, of which we're not the architects. We didn't decide on boss-employee combinations, marital combinations, uh, teacher-student combinations, all these combinations that are coercive and, and push us around. All we, he'd say all we ever wanted to do was to be able to create voluntary combinations among ourselves, which we create according to what we define as our needs, you see. I guess he'd say, I heard him say this so many times, he'd look at somebody, he'd say, now, if you and I can agree to do our share of the work of the world, if you and I can agree to only take what we need and put back what we can, if we both agree to care for the afflicted, and if we both agree not to hurt anybody, all the things you can't get from the boss and from the state, then we can begin to create between ourselves those voluntary combinations and get the work of the world done without the boss and without the state.